uh, to sort of the movie theme, and there's going to be a lot of really cool stuff involved in that. But today I'm going to answer, by God's grace, uh, three of the questions that you guys emailed in to me, and I'd love to answer more, um, but I think we're only going to get to these three. Uh, the first one relates to out of the book of Samuel. So two of them, uh, actually all of them actually come out of the Old Testament, which is interesting. And I was... Uh, curious to see what the questions would be. And so we tried to aggregate them all together. And a couple of the questions I would like to, I would like to get to in the future. But what I tried to pick was kind of the majority issue of what people were looking for. And then at the same time, trying to answer questions that maybe we haven't answered here before. What I try to do through a lot of the teaching is try to, edu to you know, t answer some of the questions within the text. And so today I'm going to focus on a few questions that are very pretty much relevant to a lot of people in, in relationship to God uh, and also um, bring up some things that, um, there we go, got questions, uh, bring up some things that um, will hopefully enlighten you as an understanding. So this first one comes out of 1 Samuel chapter 16, all right? And I'm going to read the verse, and then I'm going to back up, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. And I'm going to sort of give you the understanding into some of the characters that are in the scripture here. But I'm going to read this verse to you, and you'll probably understand the question as I read the text. You're going to go, what? And so here's the deal. The Lord says to Samuel, I'm going to take this portion because the question lies in this, in this portion. The, the Lord says to Samuel, this is the one, anoint him. So David stood there among his brothers, and Samuel took the flask of olive oil that he had brought and anointed David with oil. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David on that day. Then Samuel returned to Ramah, the city. And now the Spirit of the Lord left Saul. And the Lord sent a tormenting spirit that filled him with depression and fear. Do you see the question? Anybody know where the question would be on that? What's the question? The question is, is did God send an evil spirit? That's the question. So to understand this, I want to give you some context because I know some of you are sitting here going, well, who's Samuel, who's David, and who's this dude named Saul? I don't even know who these people are. Who are you people? So we're going to break this down for you a little bit. Samuel was a prophet. So this is the Old Testament, and God would speak to the people on behalf of or through the prophet. So Samuel was the prophet to the nation, to the people during this time. And what he would reveal the heart of God to the nation and also teach them in the ways of the Lord. David is a young man. A lot of you know the story of David and Goliath. And if you're not familiar with David, David at this time is a very young man. And the current king of the nation is a guy named Saul. So he's the current king of the nation of Israel. Well, what Saul had done is Saul had presented himself in a pattern of disobedience. And this pattern of disobedience had disqualified him from leading the people. The pattern of disobedience was an issue because what God was doing through the leader was reflecting his heart to the people. And so when, Paul, when, when Saul would disobey, he would give a misrepresentation of the Lord to the people. And so the Lord's like, listen, you're misrepresenting me. You're not getting this right. And he, would do, and he did this repeatedly. Repeatedly, It wasn't one, a one-time thing. And Saul's a guy who was very concerned with himself. He was very concerned about personal appearances. He was very concerned about self-honor. And he was not concerned with God's honor. Right? And so as a follower of Christ, or as people, as we're created and we come into relationship with Jesus, uh, one, our prominent role is to bring honor to the Lord, not honor to ourselves. And what happens is, is as we honor him, he honors us. Because it's a communal relationship. Saul, unfortunately, decided everything that he did, he leveraged for himself. He used the relationship with God. He used the, everything he did, he put back on himself. And so he had disqualified himself. Saul, uh, Samuel tells Saul, uh, you're disqualified. God tells Samuel in this chapter to go and find this particular person of this particular household, namely David. And he says, David is a man, anybody know the verse? After, after my heart. He's a man who what? Pursues my heart. So you see the contrast between Saul and David? God was putting honor on David because David was searching for the heart of God. Saul was searching for himself, and David was searching for the heart of God. So what's happening here in this passage is Samuel is coming into David's father's house, and he is telling David, who's about 15 or 16 years old at the time, he's saying, God has chosen you to be the next king. Can you imagine? Being 16 years old, you'd be like, what? You know? And the crazy thing is, is that it took him 20 years to get there. So there's a little insight into when God puts something over you, it doesn't happen immediately. And it was a big process David had to go through in order to get that. But what happens is, is the prophet takes the oil, 
which is symbolic of God's spirit, which is symbolic of God's separation. And he takes the horn of oil and he pours it over David, separating David and declaring before heaven and earth that this is the chosen one. And he anoints him or he smears him with fragrance. That's the actual rendering. And as he does this, the spirit of the Lord that was upon Saul, the Holy Spirit that was upon Saul, and we're going to talk about that for briefly, left Saul. Okay? So the Holy Spirit that was on Saul to fulfill the role that God had chosen him to do departed when David was anointed. So the Holy Spirit departs. So this leads to another question, which Christians will, which we have to understand. We have to understand the Bible in relationships to two worlds. Excuse me. We have what's called a pre-redemptive world. Do you guys like to go deep? Anybody want to use, you guys want to, you guys want to go deep? All right. All right. So, all right. So this is what's going to happen today. We went down this road. So... <laughs> We have a pre-redemptive world, which is a world that preceded Christ, right? So there's a world before Jesus came. When Jesus came, he opened the heavens, restored right relationship, and allowed the Holy Spirit to dwell with God's people permanently. Prior to that, the Holy Spirit came and went. And so what would happen is, is the prophet was not, did not have access to the Spirit at all times. The Holy Spirit would come upon the prophet and he would speak, see, and understand as God would tell him to. Or in this case, uh, David and Saul, the Spirit would come and he would go and he would come and he would go. He was not with us. And you see this in John when Jesus is about ready to be crucified and he said, if I do not depart, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. And so when Christ left, now as a Christian, it's important to understand, he doesn't take his Spirit from you. The gifts, Holy Spirit, and the callings of God, destiny, are without repentance, the Bible says. In other words, he doesn't change his mind. So God imparts to us a grace by his spirit that he knows. We don't, the whole, you can't lose the Holy Spirit. You can lose your tangible feeling of relationship with God because of stupidity. But immediately, if you come back to the Lord, you're going to realize that you cannot lose the Holy Spirit if you're truly born again. So the spirit does not leave us. And that's a beautiful thing. Aren't you glad Jesus came? I mean, come on. So in this world, the spirit came and left and came and left. And it was also symbolic of a mantle. Prophets oftentimes would wear a mantle. In other words, they would walk around with this sort of shawl, you know, kind of cool robe, like Batman cape kind of thing going on here. And they would walk around with that. And it was symbolic that they carried the anointing or they carried the spirit. So we have to understand the world before Jesus came, Jesus came, died on the cross, ascended, rose again and ascended into heaven and allows the Holy Spirit to come. He created access and he created the way back to God and back to interpersonal relationship. At this time, mankind could relate to God only at a distance and only through specific rituals and different things like that. There was a distance that was created. Jesus fulfills this. What the Bible is saying, the language that is saying here is that the evil spirit was allowed. It doesn't mean that God goes, hey, I need an evil spirit over here. Okay, I need an evil spirit. Okay, this is what I want you to go and do. That's not what's going on here. Okay, and in order to understand that, we have to kind of have a little glimmer into the, re the spiritual world. If you think that Christianity is just a mode of religion and just some other sort of static context and that there's no spiritual, there's no supernatural, there's no encounter related to Christianity, you're completely missing it. And the problem is, as people try to understand God with their mind, you cannot understand God with your mind. It's your spirit. Your mind will follow your spirit. Your spirit will have revelation and your mind will begin to follow it with understanding. Christianity is not some head trip. Right? It's a spiritual encounter. The worshipers God seeks are those who worship him in spirit and in truth. So God allows this spirit to come to Saul. Why? Why? Why would the Lord do that? First of all, Saul was arrogant in his heart. He was prideful and he was self-oriented. So God allowed the spirit to be, he allowed the Holy Spirit to leave. And what would happen is, is that Saul would now see his need. Saul would more than likely be able to see an, an incredible difference between when he was in this, when he had the Holy Spirit and now when the Spirit of God isn't on him anymore. There'd be a pretty stark contrast between that. And if you're a Christian here this morning, when you worship the Lord and you come into the Spirit and then you go to work on Monday and you're not necessarily in the Spirit, you should be able to see it, you know, and that doesn't mean that you don't have access to him. You can get in the spirit as a Christian anytime. You can enter his presence and allow his presence to fill you and move upon you and grant you grace in any circumstance or situation at any time. But, but what I'm trying to point out to you is the difference between, you know, when I'm here and I'm worshiping and oh man, this is awesome. I sense the spirit of God. Wow, this is so great. 
This is so amazing. I don't have a problem in the world. I have the peace of God on me. I feel powerful. I feel wise. I feel amazing. And then we go to work on Monday and we're like, what happened? Where did that go? <laughs> you still can access that if you will just become a worshiper and let the spirit come on you and you can move. We, we have that. But Saul did not. When the spirit left, spirit left. Spirit came and went as his will, at his will. And so the issue was is that Saul would begin to see his need for the spirit. He would begin to identify the differences in his life between being with God and being apart from God. He would see his inefficiency. He would see that he is not capable or able to do things on his own. And last but certainly not least, it would cause him to repent or return to the Lord. Next slide. So I'm just going to give you some verses. Some, some of you, you like to take pictures. You should take pictures of this slide because i got to move fast. If you want a longer version of this, I'm going to take a little bit more time in the second service. But it, um, these are verses that just sort of relate to what it looked like. You can look in the book of Job and you can see what would happen is the devil would come before the Lord and he would ask for people. He would say, give me that guy. Okay, we see this interaction going on and the Lord would not allow it or in some cases he would allow it. We see it here in Luke 22. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Peter, Peter. In other words, I don't want to get into that. It's going to take too long to explain that. But anyway, I'll, just, <laughs> I'll break it down right here. So, Satan has asked for you to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. These are both things that are in pre-redemptive world. Okay, so the relation, in other words, Jesus has not gone to the cross here yet. He has not ascended, he has not crushed the head of the devil, and he has not imparted authority to the church. And so what's going on here is it's giving us a glimmer into what the world looked like before Jesus went to the cross. And the subjection that mankind had, or the authority that demonic power had over all mankind. And now demonic authority does not, may have authority over some of mankind, but does not have authority over all of mankind. The authority that is now given to the believer, Jesus says in Luke, says all authority I give, all power, I give you all power and authority over the enemy. So here we have this world that was, the world that is. And do not celebrate because you're, you're, the, the demonic spirits are subject to you, but celebrate that your names are in the book of life. And it tells us here in Revelation chapter 12 that who the devil is, who is the accuser of the brethren. So we get this idea that the, 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 the enemy, the devil, comes before the father I don't understand exactly the dynamics of this, but the Lord allows this, and he accuses us before the Father day and night. And what the Bible indicates to us is that Jesus has paid for our sins, and he's atoned us. And so if you can look at a legal setting as the courtroom of heaven, where you have an accuser accusing us, and you have an advocate, Jesus is the advocate, and he is our defense attorney, and he says, not guilty. Not guilty. So we have the proclamation in the Spirit in Christ that we are not guilty nor subject to the rule and the reign. And then we also have the proclamation in the Scripture that we now as Christians have authority. Okay? You understand that? This is a big thing. The authority of the believer is not to be undervalued. Things come against you. We tolerate things that we do not have to tolerate. All power and authority has been given to us to tread upon serpents and scorpions. All power and authority. We have power over the circumstances and the issues of our life. And we saw oftentimes we ask God to do something for us that he's already done and empowered us to do. Lord, I'm just going through something. You know, what he wants you to do is stand up, spiritual warfare, rebuke, declare, stand, believe. That's a big exercise for the Christian and it's something that we have to learn because we're not really used to it. But nonetheless, God gives us this ability to overcome the evil that comes against us. In the world that was before, that was not the case. So did God send the evil spirit? No, but he allowed it. He allowed it. And he allowed it not for the purposes of Saul dying. He allowed it for the purposes of Saul coming back to repentance. Coming back to repentance. We see it in the New Testament. We do see this in the New Testament, but it was related to a person who was not a believer and constantly warred against God. And even though he was hearing the message, Paul says, deliver him over to Satan that he may learn not to blaspheme, that he might learn not to profane. This guy was trying to come into the church and be a part of the church, but he really wasn't converted. And he was like living sort of crazy life, licentiously, right? He was sleeping with his mother-in-law, right? His dad's, his, not his mother, but his mother-in-law. And he's coming in with her, hey, what's going on, guys? You know, and he wanted to be part of the community. And the church didn't know what to do. They're like, well, what do we do with this guy? You know? Well, clearly he's not a believer because there's no conviction in his heart whatsoever. And the Lord's like, look, tell him to go and stop profaning the Lord. Stop coming into the assembly of God and saying wrong is right, right is wrong. Stop doing that and tell him he needs to go out there until he can find himself a way to repent and a way to return to the Lord. 
And so that's what's going on. Did that answer the question for any of you? Did the Lord send the Spirit was the question? And the answer is no, but he allowed it. Yeah? Did that help you? Yeah? <laughs> I want, I'm trying to answer questions that you're asking, and I don't know if I'm answering other questions that maybe don't relate. So this is, a, this is kind of a new journey for me with answering you guys' questions, which is good. My problem isn't content. My problem is narrowing the content down into a small time frame so that you can learn from it. So what's happening here, the Lord did not. So when you're going through something, God is not sending depression to you. Depression may come to you, but we have authority over that depression. God is not sending trauma to you or circumstances to you. It may be happening to you, but he's given you an authority to be an overcomer in those circumstances in that situation. We have to realize that God has entrusted this world to us. That's, we have to understand that. We are, what are we? We're the body of Christ, right? The kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of God. When Jesus returns, he establishes the fullness of his reign. But until that time, that hasn't happened. So that question is, uh, did he send the spirit? Answers no, but he allowed it for purposes to bring Saul back. Unfortunately, Saul never repented. Saul never repented. And he continued to do foolish things and foolish things and foolish things. And Saul's choices ultimately led to his own demise. He never kind of came to the place where he would return himself to the Lord, even though the Lord was doing everything in his power to try to bring him back. And with Saul, God used the word of the prophet. He said, listen, come back, stop, stop, stop. Gave him tons of chances over a big period of years. Saul wouldn't listen. So he's like, okay, now I'm going to let Saul's circumstances teach him. And Saul wouldn't learn from his circumstances either. And so Saul ultimately, there was no way the Lord was going to get through to Saul because Saul wouldn't turn. He wouldn't turn. And so it ultimately cost him. And now when I read this, you're going to totally see the question. Here's the, here's the, here's the verse. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies declares. Okay, this actually relates to Saul as well. I've decided to settle accounts with the nation of Amalek. This is a big, 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 big question, especially for people who don't know the Lord. They often use this one or say, oh, I can't believe God's loving I have come to settle accounts with the nation of Amalek for opposing Israel, his nation, when they came out of Egypt, the Exodus. Now go and completely destroy the Amalekite nation. Men, women, children, babies, cattle, sheep, goats, camels. You see the question? I know what you're thinking. What? <laughs> that is exactly the question. What is going on here? And so we in our Western mind, we come and we look at this and, and we analyze it and we think, you know, we look at it and we go, that's cultural genocide. God's not loving. He commits genocide. I don't completely believe this. How can God be loving? It's all nonsense and you don't understand what he's doing. Hey, look, look right here in the book of Samuel talks about it. God committing cultural genocide. What's the problem? Well, here again, we judge Old Testament reality from New Testament purposes. So we're in a New Testament world. We're in a world where the gospel, the power of Jesus, has broke into the world for 2,000 years. This was a period where darkness reigned. Demonic power was in total authority. If you, Jesus came before, when Lucifer was tempting him in the desert, what did he say? Everything belongs to me. Bow down to me and I'll give it to you. You don't have to go to the cross. I'll give you what you want. I know you want to reclaim the ownership of the earth. I know that's what you came to do, but you don't need to go to the cross to do it. I'll give it to you for free. Just bow down and worship me because it all belongs to me. And you know what the interesting thing is? Jesus didn't argue it with him because at that time, that was the truth. That was the reality. And so we judge Old Testament world based upon a New Testament understanding, based upon a New Testament understanding. You can't look at an Old Testament world based upon a New Testament understanding. You have to understand the Old Testament world for what it was, okay? This is, in, these are, this is a time when entire cultures were given over and there's open demonic activity. Now, I know we see that in glimmers throughout our world, but entire cultures were giving themselves over to this type of stuff. Even all the way down to their children were participating in uh, unbelievably heinous rites. And the Bible only gives us one or two insights into what those things were. Some of the stuff he doesn't even tell us. You know, but he tells us one or two things of what was going on. So, and, and even the one or two things that he tells us what was going on, we're like, whoa, that was going on? Yeah, that was going on. So who are these people? They are Amalekites. Where do we get, how do we know about them? Well, we don't know a lot about them because they're kind of mixed into a large people group. The people of the, of the land of Canaan, which Israel, God told them, go in and take that land that belongs to me. I want it. 
these Amalekites were part of a very large people group, but they were specific tribes of Amalekites within a very larger people group. We can understand who these people are by understanding their name. The Hebrew word Amam, which means dark or secret. See where we're going? The Lek means play or festival. So we have a people who play or celebrate dark secrets. You get an idea of what these people were? They actually proclaimed it. Yeah, we're the people of the dark secret. That's who we are. We're the Amalekites, yo. So that's what they did. They attacked God's people unprovoked five times. Five major conflicts in the Old Testament, these people attacked God's people. They attacked, they attacked the nation of Israel with Moses. You know the story of Aaron and Hur, and if you know the story of Aaron and Hur, where they held up the arms of Moses, that was one of the first conflicts with the Amalekites. They attacked Israel twice in the book of Judges, and they attacked him once in the book of Samuel. This was a big conflict that we're talking about here. And then also in the book of Esther. If any of you are familiar with the book of Esther, do you know who the, who the, who the villain was? What's his name? Starts with an H, anybody know? Haman, okay? Haman was in the book of Esther, was a guy who wanted to utterly extinguish God's people. And Haman was an Agagite. Well, Agag was the king that Saul was commanded to kill in the book of Samuel. And he ultimately, Samuel had to do it himself because Saul wouldn't do it. And Agag's generations continued. And so here you have a descendant of the Amalekites, hundreds of years forward in the future, still trying to destroy God's people. And so God is saying, I want these people utterly destroyed. And you're saying, well, why would he do that? And I always argue the point, do you have any idea what it looks like to have a culture completely demonically possessed or completely demonically infected? Who's that guy in uh, Africa right now, Bobo, Bozo, whatever his name is, the guy who keeps capturing all the women? What's his name? Yeah, whatever he just said, that guy. With children soldiers, and the way they train the children's soldiers is that the soldier is initiated into the army, usually by killing a loved one. And so they bring these kids, they capture these kids, and they force them into the army. This is going on right now today in our world, right now, okay? Not here in the United, beautiful, clean, glossy United States of America, but there are other parts of the world that still are steeped in darkness. There are nations in which the gospel has not moved through. You are living in the United States, and you are a product of a nation that has had the gospel. This nation is not what it is because of our laws, because of our constitution, and because of the glorious freedoms that we celebrate. We are, this, this nation is what it is like no other earth on the earth because the gospel of Jesus Christ has moved through our land for 200 years. And that, exactly, that is what liberates, that is what promotes freedom, that is what has created the bedrock of our culture, even though we're leaving it wholesale, we're running away from it as fast as we can at this point. But nonetheless, there are nations in the world that are still steeped in darkness and those nations are not, have not been directly affected by the gospel, Africa being one of them still known as the dark continent. So we have all of these huge atrocities that can, are still being committed in this day. And so if you can just get a window into what's going on with this Bo Bogo, whatever he just said, if you can get an idea of what's going on with Bozo, he's going, he's over there <laughs> taking children, stealing women, doing all of these murderous, murderous, crazy things. And the world is appalled by it. Oh, we can't believe it. Oh, I just can't believe that's going on. I can't believe what's going on. Well, what do you think was going on in this world? This guy is doing it with chaos. These people were doing it religiously. So in other words, they had a whole system of evil that they were practicing. These guys just kind of make it up as they go along. We're just going to, you know, do whatever. We're just going to go out and do some bad things and some really dark things and some really crazy things. The Amalekites had a whole system of evil that they were practicing all the way down to their children. And that's the problem. Deuteronomy 12 tells the Lord, he tells the people before this time, he said, this is what's going to happen. This is why I'm sending you into the land. The things that they do are repulsive to me. The things that I hate, they do it before their gods. What do they do? They practice child sacrifice. They burn their sons and daughters in fire unto their gods. So there's just one little glimmer into what they do. And they did far more than that. But they would practice ritual child sacrifice openly, celebrating it. Burning of babies. They had a god called Molech, which was a big bull. He was bronze, and he had a big belly, and they would burn a fire in the belly, and they would have the arms of the baby, and they would take babies, and they would light the fire until the bronze, the bronze statue glowed red. And then they would come with their priests and their celebrations and all of these different things, and they would take the baby, and they would throw the baby on the, on the arms of the burning flames. 
And while they were doing it, the priests would be singing, the people would be dancing, and the priests would be watching the baby die to soothsay to understand the signs of what was going on. Then they would take the bones of the child, gets better, they would give them back to the parent, so they'd take the bones of the baby that was just sacrificed, this is these people, and they would put them in a jar, and the parents would take the jars of the baby that they just burned, and they would take them home, and they would put them inside of a wall inside their house. Israel to this day, when they go into the land of Canaan, they find this everywhere. They find jars of tiny children in the cornerstones or in the corners of the houses, set into the corners of the houses. Why? Because they were practicing this worship. Worship of Astaroth, worship of Molech, interrelated. This is what these people were doing. So it gives you a little bit more of a window into what's going on here. Well, I can't believe God would just exterminate entire nations of people. What's he doing? You think he's loving? You think he's just? You think he's kind? Deuteronomy 9.4 says, The Lord has done this for you. Do not say in your heart, I'm doing this, be, I'm doing this for you because you're so good. No, it's because of the wickedness of these nations. I'm pushing them out of your way. It is because, not because you are so good or you have such amazing integrity that I'm giving you this land. It is because these people continue to have, operate in the fullness of their wickedness. God hears the cries of the innocent. God sees the darkness that infected that land and he said no more, no more. And so he takes his people to push out the darkness. He said, I'm gonna take my nation and I'm gonna push out the darkness. We should be the voice of opposition. I know it's not politically correct anymore here in our country, we don't say anything. We're just nice and kind and don't say anything. But we are to be the voice of opposition in a dark world. We're the ones who cry out against child slavery. We're the ones who cry out against abortion. And whether you think, whatever your perspective is on that, I'm not here to convince you either way today. But I'm going to tell you, you need to do some research from a biblical perspective, a spiritual perspective, not a cultural perspective on right and wrong in that. And I say this saying, listen, there are people and there's lots of people who've given, who've had that happen to them. And so it's not an issue of guilt and shame. It's an issue now of knowledge. What has happened in the past, if you were under that, is gone, is done. But now we need to walk in knowledge. We need to understand that that's not right and that we shouldn't endorse that. And if, we, and if, we're, if you're still at the place as a Christian where you're kind of not sure where to go with that, you should research it. You should research it. Not from your perspective, but from God's. Because we do not think from our perspective. As a Christian, you were called to have the mind of Christ. Do we understand this? D don't say you follow Christ if you don't have the mind of Christ. Bible says you're worldly and carnal. You may be born again and your sins may be forgiven, but if you agree with the things that God disagrees with, you're, you're carnal, you're fleshly minded, the Bible says, and you're really of no good. You're the salt that is scattered on the ground that gets trampled underfoot. Just saying. Welcome to Elevate. My name is Kevin and I'm your friend. <laughs> All right, do we got time for one more? You guys want to do one more? Or you're like, oh, dude, you're killing me, man. I want to get out of here. No, I'll give you one more. You want to do one more? All right, I got to tell you, this is the one I struggled with the most, not because of the question itself, but because of the depth of the answer. And so I pray that God would give me an ability to communicate at least some level of what's going on here. Anybody ever seen Ezekiel chapter one? If you've never seen Ezekiel chapter one, I encourage you to go home and read it because I'm not going to read it for you today because it's an entire chapter. What's going on here? Ezekiel sees a vision of the Lord. Prophets were called seers. Clearly the Holy Spirit came upon him and God gives him a vision. You wanna talk about a divine encounter? This is a divine encounter with God right here, right now, happening with, with, with Ezekiel. What's going on and what's this vision all about? The Lord is showing him a vision, a vision of himself, and he is to understand who God is and he is to take the understanding that he sees in this vision of who God is, and he is to relate it back to the people. That's the whole point. The Lord is revealing in this vision of Ezekiel, he is showing Ezekiel who he is. This is who I am, this is what I'm all about, and I want you to take this vision of who I am and what I'm all about, and I want you to take it back to the people who've forgotten who I am. I want you to take it back to the people who are ignorant of who I am. I want you to take it back to the people who are rebellious, he actually says in chapter two, against who I am. So this is the call of the prophet. Understand who God is and speak it. Whether they, people like it, whether people don't like it, whether it's culturally popular, whether it's not culturally popular, that's not the issue. The call of the prophetic teaching, the call of the one who proclaims the word of God is to understand and see who God is and to speak it. Whether people are, if they're ignorant of it, they will come to it. They're like, wow, I didn't know. Oh my gosh. If they're rebellious against it, they still need to hear it. 
And so what's going on here? Ezekiel sees this like crazy, crazy, crazy vision. You just read it and you tell me it's not crazy. What does he see? He sees elements. He sees wind. He sees fire. He sees clouds which symbolize water. And then we see the earth in there. So we have the elements of creation. So this vision has something to do with creation. He sees creatures. What's up with these creatures? He sees angels that have four sides to them and four faces. There's the face of a man, the face of an ox, the face of a lion, and the face of an eagle. And they have four wings. What the heck's that all about? Exactly. Some crazy vision he's seeing, right? It's like, what's he smoking? I don't know. Then he sees these wheels and he sees this whole image is in motion. And he recognizes that the motion of this image is done by the Spirit of God. So wherever the Spirit moved, there moved the vision. The vision would move according to what the Spirit wanted. Then we see in verse 16, he sees a wheel inside of a wheel. We can understand that, like a gyroscope kind of effect. A wheel inside of a wheel. He sees a throne in verse 26. So above all this whole crazy vision that he's seeing, he sees a throne of one sitting upon a throne above the vision in a firmament, light. And he sees all of these crazy colors that associate with the vision. He sees amber or red. He sees a red amber. And he sees the likeness of a man. And he sees a, he sees a rainbow. Interesting. So who's above the crowd? Who's above the thing? What he's seeing is he's seeing Jesus. He is seeing the glory of the Lord, the glory of Christ, right? Who the rainbow represents covenant. So he's seeing a covenant God who's come down in authority, in power, the ruler and the maker of heaven and earth. There's the elements. You see that you see the faces of these angels. These faces of these angels are very important in relationship, they're spiritual. We see them also in the book of Revelation. They represent not only the four cardinal points of the constellations, if you want to understand this, they're the crown of the, 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 there's a crown of stars that sits upon the earth and they have four cardinal constellations. We have Leo, we have uh, Aquila the eagle, we have um, Aquarius the man, and then we have Taurus the bull. Those are the four cardinal points of the stars. So there's a star system going on here. Again, it's talking about a, a created order talking about authority. These angels are specifically called seraphim. So, okay, if you want to get, understand angels, there's two different, well, there's three, but there's two different classes of angels that are clear to us. We have cherubim and we have seraphim. The seraphim are the holy angels that are before the throne of God. In the book of Revelation, you see these living creatures, which are seraphim. They're a class of angels, and it's the same beings bowing before the Lord, going, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. So this vision... Serve these, the goal of these angels were to, this, this vision is a serving of the Spirit and it's a reflecting of the nature of the Lord. What Ezekiel is seeing, he's seeing the author, Jesus, of salvation. The creatures, the living beings, all represent not only the cardinal points of the constellation, they, they relate to the, the actual identity of Jesus. Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus is the servant, which is the representation of the bull. Jesus is the king, which is the representation of the lion. Jesus is the deliverer, which is the representation of the eagle. All four of the Gospels carry one of those themes. You have Matthew, Jesus is the king. You have Mark, Jesus is the servant. You have uh, Luke, he's the son of man. And you have uh, John, and those are the theme. The themes of those Gospels relate back to this vision. How is that possible? Because the Holy Spirit wrote the book. John didn't write the gospel. Holy Spirit wrote it through him. Matthew didn't write. And so the themes of these books all point back to these four living creatures. Jesus is sitting on a throne with wheels spinning around. And these angels are beneath him and they're all in motion. Reflecting his nature. Reflecting who he is. Reflecting all of this. So he's, it's showing us an insight into who Jesus is. Jesus is a servant. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus, is, Jesus identifies with you and me. He doesn't identify with dogs and cats. He doesn't even identify with angels. He calls himself the son of man. Aren't you glad? He loves you that much. He comes to identify with you of all the things. He's the king and the ruler. He's the lion king. No one is worthy of the throne except him. Come on. He's the eagle, the deliverer. There's a symbol all through the scripture of the eagle in the Bible is the one who comes in to deliver, the one who comes in to take away. He comes in to deliver us. He sets us free, calls us into a new life. He sees this angel. He sees these angels reflecting the one that's on the throne. He sees the fire, the passion. It relates to a created order. But the emphasis that I feel like I'm going to put on here right here at the end is on these wheels. What the heck's up with these wheels? 
What's this all about? He's also not only seeing the one who created everything, he's seeing the archetype and the pattern of creation itself at the same time. He sees wheels within a wheel, which is a gyroscope effect. So if you can kind of get the idea with this, right? Some of you will know it as a Vescus Pisces, if you know anything about that and what it symbolizes. But this is actually from the Bible. There's a symbolicness of this. There's a deep spiritual truth and a deep spiritual understanding. And what it reflects, Jesus is, what the prophet is seeing is he's seeing two, two, two spheres intersecting. And then this is kind of like a cross section of that laid flat. So you get the idea of the two worlds meeting. The point is heaven to earth, on earth as it is in heaven. You understand that? The divine world, the earth world, all of these things. It's also the union of Christ with his people, the divine reality of him and salvation and our reality and our roles and purposes with him as sons and daughters. This is the model of creation. It's the sacredness and order of creation. God created everything in cycles. The word for wheels is the Hebrew word afanim. So what the Bible is trying to tell us here is it's not really the emphasis on wheels, it's the emphasis on cycles. And so he's showing us not only a model and a type of creation, which I do not have time to explain this very well at all. It would take me an hour. It would be super cool if I could, but it, it would take me too long to explain it. But So I'm just going to focus a little bit on the cycles. The ofanim is the Hebrew word. So he sees a wheel within a wheel. He sees an ofanim, right? We see this word ofanim again and again and again and again through scripture. We see ofanim in the book of Psalms. He leads me in paths of righteousness. He reads me in cycles of righteousness for his namesake. God created everything in the universe. So here's the pattern of creation. You need to understand how God works, right? If we're going to relate to God, we have to understand how he works. He created everything in systems and cycles. We have cycles of days. We have cycles of months. We have cycles of years, correct? That's just time and space. We have a respiratory cycle. You breathe in, you breathe out. You breathe in, you breathe out. You understand that? There's a cycle to that. There's a cycle of life. There's a cycle of the harvest. The idea is, is that this whole idea of God's ofanim and what a cycle is to the Lord is it's a return to the beginning. So it's a beginning point, an arc, and a return to the beginning. We see the cycle of days. Let's just take that. So we have seven days, very sacred in the Bible. The Sabbath, the seventh day was very sacred. Sabbath being a seventh doesn't have to be the Saturday, right? Somebody was just asking me about the Sabbath. This doesn't necessarily be a Saturday. It's the cycle. The point was, is that it's like a seed that begins, the seed grows, flowers, produces more seed, and then begins another cycle. So as a Christian, what happens here this morning, this is why church is so important. People neglect church. When we, ne when we neglect divine cycles, it never goes well. Let's just say that. So we come to church, and what's happening here this morning is this is a renewal point. You're encountering the presence of God, you're encountering the Spirit, you're encountering truth, and all of a sudden you're going to leave here and tomorrow, and you're going to begin a cycle, and you're going to begin it on the right note. You're going to feel pretty good tomorrow morning. You know, at least when you walk out the door. Okay, when you get on 95 or you get in traffic, that may not happen, but or when you walk in the door of the job, but you're going to begin because you're beginning anew. You're beginning a new cycle. And so this pattern, these wheels that Jesus is showing us is he's showing us the order. He's showing us that everything is created in cycle. Our Bible would call it times and seasons. Cycles of seven. Next slide. We have the cycle of seven. So there's minor cycles, there's major cycles. Minor cycle is a cycle of seven. So if you want to interact with the Lord and you want to operate in his divine purposes, that cycle of seven is pretty important. Today is pretty important. That's why you're seeing it and you're having an experience with God because you're here today. The Holy Spirit is encountering him because you're going back to the beginning. The cycles that God creates, it's always back to the beginning, back to the beginning, back to the beginning. You're coming here and you're going back to the beginning. You're understanding who you are. Outer cycles, inner cycles, seed cycles, orders of creation. When we operate within the divine cycle of God, it, op it releases the divine blessing of God, and it also releases divine harmony. So let's just take this morning here, okay? Let's just put this out there for you. You're operating in a divine cycle here. You say, no, I just came to church because somebody dragged me here, you know? No, you're operating in a divine cycle. You're here this morning, and what's happening is, is divine harmony and divine blessing is coming to you. There's a peace in your spirit because you're operating within the divine cycle. There's an, an order of things that are happening. There's a divine harmony. So God is showing Ezekiel the necessity of the divine cycle, that all of the universe operates. We have the rain cycle. Water goes up, water comes down. There's a cycle to rain. There's a cycle to harvest, seed time, harvest. 
he tells them, go back to the nation of Israel, Ezekiel chapter two. So he shows them this vision. This is who I am. I'm a servant. I'm an eagle. I'm a lion. I'm the ruler. I'm, the, I'm like, I, I identify. He shows them all this. This is my glory. I'm in charge of it all. I rule creation, but I'm also the Lord of the cycle. I'm the God of the cycle. As a believer, we don't operate according to God has a cycle for everything. Tithing is a cycle. No, I don't believe that. Okay. Tithing is a cycle. We open the windows of heaven through tithing. So the Bible says, is it true or is it not? Okay. It's a cycle. God gives to us. We return to him a seed and a portion of what he has given to us, activating the divine cycle of blessing. Without it, the divine cycle of blessing is not active. Prayer is a divine cycle. Worship is a divine cycle. We worship the Lord and we activate a divine cycle. We create a new ark. This is what God is showing us. The cycles are important. What was going on here is the nation of Israel had broken the divine cycle. So this whole vision of Ezekiel, God's like, this is who I am, and this is why they are where they are. They've broken my divine cycle. They may not know my divine cycle, but they've broken it. Israel was thrown out of the land because they didn't give God, they were not operating according to God's cycles, particularly the land. They were supposed to rest the land for every seven years, they were supposed to rest the land, and they were supposed to live by faith. So six years, they were supposed to work the land, work the land, work the land, and then the seventh year, they were to let the land rest. And God said, I'll provide for you. Just let the land rest. This is my cycle. Cycles of seven, six and one, six and one, six and one. Six around one, very sacred number. So God, but Israel didn't do that, and they didn't do it for like 70 years. So they owed God 490 years. They didn't do it for like, they, owed, they basically owed God 70 years. And so God said, because you won't honor me, you've broken my cycle, I'm going to take you out of the land. And so here they are in a nation of Babylon because they had broken God's cycles. And so they were outside of the covenant and outside of the blessing of God or the favor of God, if you will, because they were not operating within the cycles of God, within the word or the things that God had created as a cycle of blessing. And so he's like, I want you to go and tell them when we break the cycles of God, okay, we're going to talk a little culture here. When we break the cycles of God, nothing good happens. When we break the cycles of God as a Christian, you, you just you try it. I'm not telling you to try it, but I'm going to tell you if you did, you'd see the difference. If you stopped coming to church for six weeks, where do you think you'd be? You wouldn't be in a very good spot. I tell you the same thing for me. I wouldn't be in a very good spot because what I'm doing is I'm breaking the cycle of blessing. Nothing good is going to come from that, right? Whatever it may be, whatever God's cycle of blessing, I'm not here to break down every cycle of blessing that God has, but whatever the blessing may be, when you break the cycle of blessing, nothing good happens. That's just us as God's people. What happens when a culture does it? What happens when a culture or a nation begins to move away from God's directive cycles? Well, are we doing that today as a culture? Well, God has a cycle of six and rest, six and rest six and rest. Work six days, rest one. Work six days, rest one. Do whatever you got to do for six days and honor me on the seventh. Make sure you understand, repeat the divine cycle, understand your identity so that when you go back out into the world, you understand who you are, you understand what your purpose is, and you reset that every seven days. You're to reset that. Do we do that? Well, what's going on in our world is we work endlessly. We work endlessly. We got banks that are open seven days. You know, seven days, everything's seven days. We work ourselves to the bone now and we wonder why things are falling apart. We wonder why we can't keep our marriages. We wonder why our kids have left the reservation because we work ourselves beyond outside of the cycle that God has created for us. We're outside of that cycle. Are we doing that? Are we, are we breaking God's cycle? We have organizations in our beloved country and I love America. Thank you, Jesus, for allowing me to be born here. But we have organizations and cultures that are creating genetically modified food. Do we need genetically modified food? And what this genetically modified food is, is it has what's called a seed terminal in it. Not going to mention, well, Monsanto. <laughs> I'll throw them out there. <laughs> they have a genetic, they create a seed that's called terminal. So in other words, when you go to plant corn, you can plant corn, harvest the corn, but you cannot replant the seed that's in that corn. Because they create, they've modified the seed to be terminal. That's what they do. Cotton, soy, almost all of soy, they're trying to take over corn right now, and they're trying to genetically modify the food to where you are completely reliant. Say, why would they do that? Because they want you to buy seed from them every year. They don't want you, a farmer, to come in and buy corn and then take 10% and save it for seed so that you can sow your field next year. They want the, term, they want the food to be terminal. And so what they do is they create patents upon the seeds. They create an industry, and what they're actually doing is they're breaking a divine cycle. And I'm here to tell you, 
that nothing good is going to come from this. Not even from a health-wise. You, you understand that we have the potential for, crop, for global crop failure at like no other time in our history. We have, what happens when they can't produce a seed anymore? What happens when they've so genetically modified the seed that it no longer can produce? What happens then? Are we breaking the cycles of God? Yes. Human genome. We experiment on genome. I wasn't going to put it out there, but I'm going to put it out there. We had a big ruling yesterday. You know, big ruling. I don't know, Friday, whatever the day was. I don't know. So we just declared that same-sex marriage is okay. Right? Now I know I'm going to offend some of you. Some of you are immediately going to give me pushback. I know. I know. And that's okay. I'm all right with that. I, I don't expect you to check your brain at the door. I expect you to search and see what God says. The divine cycle of God, Jesus said it. He defined marriage in the Bible. So as a Christian, your definition of marriage is not what your culture says. I'm sorry to tell you that. If that makes you mad and you're kind of like, oh, Kevin, this is all about human rights. Is it really? Or are we actually breaking a divine cycle of the created order? And what will be the results of us breaking a divine cycle of the created order? We don't even know what the results will be. But the results of the created order, Jesus defined the created order of marriage. He said, one man, one woman. As it was from the beginning, this is the created order. Now, is that sin any worse than adultery? Absolutely not. Pastors fall out of adultery. Big pastor just fell out of adultery, had a relationship with, his, with somebody else, and he just went down. Is he any worse? Is, is somebody who struggles with same-sex relationships any worse than the guy, that guy? No, they're both sins. They're both sins, but they need to be repented of and turned from. That's the issue. And so what we're doing as a culture and as a society is we're proclaiming something that is right that the divine creator has said is outside of my cycle. And what are the results of that going to be? Well, we're yet to see. I probably won't see the results of that. But you know what? If you're my age, your children will and your grandchildren will. You will see the results of a culture that has lost its mind. You will see the results of a culture that now says men can be women if they feel like it. And we're going to celebrate you and we're going to put you on the cover of a magazine. Woo! Haven't we arrived? We've arrived. We are so liberated as a culture, aren't we? We've finally arrived. Now, I'm not here to be against anyone. The issue is somebody's got brokenness. Sin is the problem. The people aren't the problem. It's undealt with issues that are the problem. We have to return to the one who heals our brokenness. I'm sure. I'll put myself out there. My name is Kevin, and I'm a sinner, and I need Jesus. My name is Kevin, and I'm tempted with sins far worse than being attracted to a man. But do I act upon them? Absolutely not. You know, I want to kill somebody when they cut me off on the highway. I do. That doesn't mean I do it, right? Let's just be honest. If you're a dude, and all the guys are going to get really holy here in a second, if you're a guy... You have fantasies of sleeping with other women that are not your wife. <gasps> I would never do that. Yeah, right. Uh. That doesn't mean you act on it. What it means is that we, 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 we restrain ourselves and constrain ourselves under the covenant of the creator God. Do you see the difference? This isn't an issue of condemnation. This isn't an issue of judgment. This isn't an issue of anything. We have to put the standard of Jesus as the answer. There's brokenness and rejection, but that doesn't mean we celebrate it. And that doesn't mean we proclaim a new standard. We have to be loving. We have to be gracious. We have to be kind. We have to say, look, you know, and I, I know I'm digging myself a hole here. I've dealt with guys, particularly men who've struggled with same-sex issues, my entire ministry. I'm not foreign to it. And I have seen God do redemptive work after redemptive work every single time. I have seen Jesus bring people from the furthest points of brokenness and bring them to a place of wholeness because the person was willing to yield themselves to Christ. It didn't mean that the person that began the journey didn't struggle along the journey. Just like I began the journey and I'm still struggling along the journey. But what it meant was is that they decided that this is not where I want to go. This is where I want to go. And if I've got to crawl there, if I've got to stumble there, if I've got to fall over myself to get there, it doesn't matter. I'm going to get there. I'm going to go there. And so I want you to understand that. I've had several guys that come out of this lifestyle, I've had them actually live with me. Because we get this whole thing, oh, church is judging, church is, and I don't want to give the impression that that's the case. Some of my best friends and some of the people I've, de I've dealt business with in the past have been people that have dealt with same-sex issues. Same-sex issues aren't the issue. Sin is the issue, guys. 
So I hope I'm being clear with that. Same sex. Boom, there it is, right there, one thing. I actually moved it off the slide to bury it because I wasn't going to talk about it, but I kept feeling the Lord pulling me out there. So it's like, all right, I'm going to pull me out there. I'm going to say it. It's important. It's important that we understand it for what it is. It's more than a cultural issue. It's a spiritual issue. It's more than a cultural issue. It's breaking the divine cycle of order. And if we understand what the devil is trying to do, he's trying to break the divine cycle of order. He's trying to totally just shift everything around. So anyway, <laughs> if you're mad at me, you can beat me up. I'll be standing over there in the corner. <laughs> Sherry will give you a couple of broomsticks to hit me with if you need them. So she's going she's gonna to help you out if you're upset. I can't believe you said that. If you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus, Jesus wants you in this divine cycle of order. The divine cycle of order begins when you give your life to him. You give your life to Christ, you have a new beginning, you have a new point, it's a nexus point, it's a new intersection. Life comes to you. Life comes to you. Old things pass away, all things become new. You have the power to be someone that you never were or never could be. And if you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus, I would ask you humbly, I couldn't ask you any more clearly to give your life to him this morning. Not your mind, but your heart. Just surrender your heart. You say, I have guilt and shame. We're not caring about guilt and shame. If I have guilt and shame all the time. And if I confess my sins, he is faithful and just to forgive me of my sin and to cleanse me from everything that's not right. And what he does for me, he'll do for you. If you're here this morning and you've never given your heart to Jesus, today is your day. And so how do I do that, you might ask? Well, just, we're gonna pray together as a church. All you gotta do is open your heart. Nobody can open your heart but you. And so you pray this prayer with an open heart and Jesus is going to meet you. He is going to encounter you. Say, how do you know it? Because he said he would. He said, I stand at the door and knock. If you will open the door to me, the door of your heart, I will come in and I'll have dinner with you. Literally, it's communion. I will be one with you. So if you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus, you never open up your heart, today is that day. So let's just pray together as a church. Let's just pray. Dear Jesus, come on, we can do better than that. Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the savior and I need a savior. I may not understand this, but I choose to believe it. I open my heart to you, Jesus, and I ask you to come inside. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to heal me. I ask you to...